Hi, guys, and welcome to the first ever episode of The Heart of the Bookkeeper, a podcast about bookkeepers helping bookkeepers, helping business, and the journey that they have been on to get to where they are today. I'm Rob Marshall, and after 25 years of being part of this truly amazing community and industry, I want to encourage you to join me each episode as we explore and discover some of the amazing individuals and people that make up our industry. We will hear of tears and triumphs, of the challenges, failures and successes that have shaped the heart of the bookkeeper and many others associated with the bookkeeping industry here in Australia and beyond. Each episode of The Heart of the Bookkeeper is brought to you by the Institute of Certified Bookkeepers. And whether you are a member of the Institute, a bookkeeper in practice, or an employed bookkeeper, or perhaps you're just somebody listening in with an ear for what is this all about, this podcast, we believe, is for you. Simply, if there is a passion that burns inside you as a bookkeeper, or whatever it is that you are doing in your life at this moment, we love your heart and we hope that we can share the hearts of others to value add to your experience and to your journey. In this first ever episode of Heart of the Bookkeeper, we are so fortunate today to have the CEO of the ICB, Amanda Linton, joining us. Amanda is someone who totally understands the bookkeeping industry and what the challenges are to be successful. Amanda has more than 20 years experience working in the bookkeeping industry, as well as owning and establishing bookkeeping businesses. In this episode, Amanda will not only share her bookkeeping journey, as you will hear, but also her often at times extremely difficult and debilitating journey with anxiety and depression, and how she has had people come into her life that have changed her ways of dealing with these challenges and what a difference that has made. If you think you know Amanda Linton, then perhaps think again, as Amanda shares her heart and her passion for what she has achieved, what she is currently achieving, and what her hopes and dreams for the future of the bookkeeping industry are. I am so thrilled to be talking with Amanda, so sit back and settle in for episode one of Heart of the Bookkeeper, Amanda Linton. It's a huge welcome to you, Amanda. Welcome to Heart of the Bookkeeper. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be a part of it. And Amanda, I've got to tell you now, you will always be number one. You guys uh, hear me regularly going on about the fact that in the ICB membership, I'm number 25. Well, you're always going to be able to say you are number one on Heart of the Bookkeeper. How good's that? And I'll call it out now. Matthew Addison. How, how good is that? The CEO is always going to be number one. It's nice to get one up on him occasionally. <laughs> we, we jostle with Matthew regularly around about getting one up and shit, but I think we have to admit generally he gazumps us regularly on that one, doesn't he? But uh, anyway, enough about Matthew Addison because this is clearly about Amanda Linton today. Amanda, I am so, so thrilled to have you join me and us today. So before we sort of drill a little bit too deep into where, you know, how you got to where you are now and, and, and the processes around that, COVID-19 has challenged us all. It's been a, a, a an incredible journey that none of us saw coming and are still scratching our heads as to what's still unfolding. Tell us a little bit about how you've um, sort of dealt with COVID-19 and, and where you're at right now in that part of the journey. Well, it's been a really interesting um, last few months for me, Rob, particularly for those of you who might know, the vast majority of the ICB team are in Melbourne. Uh, however, I actually live in Adelaide, so I've not had the same level of restrictions on me as what the vast majority of our team have. And I have to say, probably one of the biggest challenges for me throughout all of this period is having to try and balance the fact that ICB as an organisation still needs to continue when we can still, our first mandate is members at the centre. So being able to make sure that we can still service our membership base. But at times I've been really challenged by just watching the dedication and sometimes the frustrations that our Melbourne team have had to actually go through. So 
I think that's probably the biggest challenge for me throughout this has been just watching and knowing that to a great extent, there's nothing I can do to help our team, you know, really, um, kind of get through it any more than try and make life as pleasant and as um, streamlined as we possibly can inside the organisation. So that's probably been my biggest challenge. On a more personal note, I suppose, um, being now not having traveling quite so much has been a very significant change for me. So mm. the last time I got off a plane was the, I think it was the 18th, 19th of March when we came back from our Perth conference. Remember, Rob, we just mm. finished our Perth conference and uh, we were on our way to Adelaide and realized we had to cancel Adelaide and then subsequently Melbourne. And I haven't been out of the state since. So that's been a very significant shift. Um, I've loved being at home. I say to people all the time, you might have to ask my husband whether he's enjoyed having me at home, but um, it's certainly been a really nice welcome change just to be able to plant my feet on the ground for a little while. Yeah, even if you'd had a crystal ball at the start of 2020, I don't reckon you could have seen what has unfolded in this last, well, eight, nine months. We're starting to probably reflect now more than just talk about where we're trying to go. Um, and I think the reflection is part of the process of trying to work out where to go. But I, I, I reckon that um, one of the things I've observed about you, Amanda, is that throughout all of this, you've maintained an incredible calmness and an ability to lead. And we're going to unpack that a little bit later and have a chat about that. And I know that's a core value that you believe in strongly. And I'm really, really interested to find a little bit more about your your thinking around that. But we're probably starting to get a little bit of ahead, ahead of ourselves now. Let's get down into Amanda Linton, the person herself. I've, I've kind of got a little bit of an understanding. You and I have been friends for, for quite a long time now, but I, I don't know a lot about your early childhood. Maybe Tell us a little bit. I know that you currently call Adelaide home, but that hasn't always been home, has it? Uh, maybe a little bit um, for the listeners around where you were born and where you grew up and a little bit about your recollections of those early years for Amanda Linton. So I was born in Hobart in Tassie and I was the, also I'm the eldest daughter of, of three the eldest of three girls, mum and dad, both from Tassie as well. So we're a well and truly ingrained Tasmanian family. And I spent most of my childhood growing up there. To be perfectly honest with you, Rob, I, I don't have a huge lot of memories before the age of about 10. And the only thing I can put that down to is that my parents separated when I was 10 years old. And um, varying people over the years have told me that quite often children put some kind of a barrier in front of themselves to, um, and that's to protect themselves, I suppose. But look, my recollections of my childhood were I grew up in a very loving, supporting family. Predominantly for a lot of those years, it was myself and my mum and my two sisters, and we were all extremely close growing up. It was, uh, there were challenges. There's no two ways about that. Mum raising three girls predominantly on her own, mm. but it was a, you know, I, I don't ever have any recollections of ever missing out or um, any huge amount of heartache in those early years. It was it was great. And as I say, my sisters and I to this day are still very, very close. So family for me has probably been at the centre of most of my life in one way or another. That's uh, one of the most important things to me is is the, this concept of family. and But unpacking that and understanding that it's not always just a blood family either. So mm. uh, my extended family over the years you know, has been varied as well. But look, as I said, the, my childhood was uh, was great. Spent most of it living in Hobart. We moved around a little bit. I spent three years living in Launceston when I was much younger. Um, we even, can you believe this, Rob? My mum decided to take us on a six-week holiday to Darwin and we ended up staying for six months. So my <laughs> sisters and I ended up in school, um, living the life, you know, being introduced to a whole new world of people and culture that we'd never come across before. So that was probably the blip in an otherwise fairly normal childhood, I would say. Mm, so I think one of the things that even, you know, I associate with and every listener listening to this podcast today would, would associate with, and that is when you think of your childhood, sometimes it is a little bit dim in certain areas, but then suddenly you might get a a smell or something that just takes you back. I know my wife and I were out walking a couple of days ago and I said to her, 
oh, can you smell that? She said, what What are you talking about? I said, that is the smell of the Harvey show. That's where I grew up, a little town called Harvey in Western Australia. And every time around about this time of the year was the Harvey show, the agricultural show. And just the smell of certain flowers as we were out walking just took me straight back there, even though I haven't been there for the best part of 35 years. So is there any sort of things that even today you go, oh, yeah, that's Hobart or that's Launceston, you know, that, that that takes me back. Not so much smells or that kind of thing, but the one thing that does take me back quite often, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this, is music. So certain mm. songs that will remind me of things that happened at varying stages of my life. So, and interestingly enough, they tend to be tied not so much to where I was necessarily at the time, but the things that were going on around me, the people who were around me at the time. So um, Mm. music has always been a huge part of my life. I learnt to play the keyboard at a very young age, uh, was predominantly self-taught for most of that. So I still tinker around a little bit. I'm a little bit embarrassed, Rob, to play in front of anyone. So now it's just me standing in the (laughs) lounge room at home. But music's always been a huge part of my life and mum always had music going in the house. So I even though I remember most of my childhood growing up through the 80s, I have to say that uh, most music from the 60s and 70s is what generally draws me back to to my childhood. Well, I wasn't going to necessarily ask you your age, but I reckon the listeners are starting to do the math and maybe are working it out. So we'll we'll, we'll leave that one a bit of a mystery. We won't go too deep on Heart of the Bookkeeper into people's ages, but uh, you're clearly a girl of the 80s. There's no doubt about that. And we might actually pick up on that a little bit later in a, in, in a little uh, process that I've, I've got called debits and credits. But I'll tell you a little bit about that l- l- a little bit later. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've noticed that um, you have you did spend that time in Darwin. Did you kind of find that Darwin was different to Hobart, Launceston in, you know, obviously it is weather-wise, but a very sort of similar demographic maybe or no, it was, totally it, different? It was totally different, Rob, and that's the, that's the thing. So... At the time, in Hobart, we had a very, very low migrant community. So at school, I was used to white Anglo-European kids, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So we weren't used to, we didn't have a lot of different cultures in our school. So I went from a school like that straight into a school now that was a huge mix of so many different cultures. So we had Aboriginal kids and um, we had children with Italian and Greek and Chinese heritage and all of these kinds of things. So for the first time in my life, it gave me a real insight into the fact that there was a big wide world beyond little old Hobart. So Mm -hmm. that was a, um, and I do remember being really quite intrigued about um, understanding what other cultures were about and more than understanding them because I was just curious about why they were different, but understanding them so I could come up with a way or an understanding of how um, everyone should be treated equally. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's an incredible learning in itself, isn't it? And one that I think, well, knowing a little bit about you, you've clearly has had an impact on you for the rest of your life. So so Darwin, yeah, from Darwin it was back to Tasmania, was it, or after that, or where, where was where, where did we go? Yeah, it was back to Tassie. Um, so at the time I did that trip, I was around the age of about 11, 11, 12, somewhere around there. And so back to Hobart, um, finished off my primary school years and then straight into high school. So that was pretty mm. well where I finished the vast majority of my schooling. You know, again, moved, we moved around a little bit within Hobart. So I don't think we stayed in the one place for all that long. But luckily for me, um, Hobart's not so big that it meant changing schools and all of those kinds of things. So I was still pretty settled um, and I loved school. That was my thing. So I was you know, quite a good scholar. Just between you and me, Rob, I was probably a bit of a teacher's pet. But <laughs> I, as I said, I just loved school. I loved learning. I loved finding out something new. So for me, school was, it didn't really matter. I was one of those kids. It didn't really matter where I would have gone to school. I would have learnt anyway because I just loved to learn. Mm. So you're, at this point, you're 11, 12. Are you starting to, you know, was there any indication that you might end up in the in the bookkeeping world at that point or are you thinking, you know, nurse or doctor or aeroplane pilot or what were you thinking back then or was it a case of life's just good and I'll see where it lands? Well, it's funny that you say that because I did actually have a um, – 
a little bit of a thing for flying. I've always loved planes. Maybe that's why I agreed to travel so much when I got older. But <laughs> I always loved being on planes. And just a sidestep for a, a just for a moment, a friend of mine for my 30th birthday bought me two flying lessons, which was sensational. That was sort of like a childhood dream come true. But the one thing that I do remember about that time is, as I mentioned before, my mum and dad separated when I was 10 years old. And I remember like it was yesterday, just standing in the lounge room and listening to clearly one side of a phone call between my mum and dad. And they were talking about property settlements and things like that. And I was kind of old enough to understand or think I understood what all that meant, but not really old enough to be able to put it into perspective. And I just remember hearing my mum say something like, you know, oh, you're going to put us out to this particular suburb, which, you know, was a fairly low socioeconomic area. Um, And I just remember with a combination of a lot of other things going on at the time, standing in that lounge room and making my mind up that I was never going to be so dependent on someone that Mm. I ever had to have that conversation. And Mm. that's pretty profound for a 12-year-old, I think. But as I said, Mm. I can. you talk about smells and music that takes you back. I can tell you the song that was playing when that conversation was happening. I just... And and it, it is a point in my childhood that I do really think defined or helped define who I am and the journey that I've been on. Yeah, it really is an incredible um, moment that if you can reflect back on something as poignant as that and to be able to still hear the music running in the background, you know, that's the thing that I think many of us overlook the fact that we have so many moments in our life that have had impacts that whatever point you're at right now, um, play a critical role. And you've clearly had one there. I'm, I'm intrigued by your mum. You know, you said that she, you know, obviously had an interesting gig with um, the girls to, to bring up. Do you, is there lessons learnt from what you saw your mum go through that maybe still impact you now? Look, I think the whole process did. Like I watched my mum, who is an incredibly independent, self-sufficient woman, even to this day, and I love my mum dearly. She, I think, taught me that or instilled in me the fact that I could pretty well do anything that I turned my hand to and Mm. not to be afraid to give something a go. So she really taught me the foundations of what it means to be independent, what it means to be definitive about the kinds of things that you want to try and achieve in life. And it's quite interesting because if you ask her now, she will tell you that I was just stubborn and pig-headed. But I think I got a lot of that from her, the learnings from her. And I just Mm. watched her throughout that whole period that it was never about her. It was always about us as kids. So she always put herself Mm. second to I suppose if you want to put it this way, to service the needs of us as, as her children. And I'm sure that there are a lot of mums um, out there who are listening that, you know, that, that would do the same thing. But it really, again, it really is one of those defining things that I think has taught me over the years that not only could I pretty well do anything that I turned my hand to if I wanted to, but she also taught me the value of things. So she taught me that you get what you want in this life by working hard and nothing comes to you for nothing. So if you want an opportunity that you've really got to put yourself out there and go for it. And as I say, I think that was probably more than anything else that's shaped who I am and the way I approach things. I think watching her and her courage through all of that is probably what's actually cemented that. And your mum and dad, had they lived in Tasmania you know, for a long period before you guys come along? Is that where their origins are or do they go back to other parts of Australia or maybe other parts of the world? No, look, they both both born and bred in Tasmania. Um, mum came from a family of five. She was the youngest of five. My dad was the eldest of two boys and he, uh, my dad's family were heavily involved in football. So my uncle played state league football and was an extremely good footballer. Nice. Won the equivalent nice. of, well, they now call it, the can't remember the name of the medal. Um, we'll go with the, the medal, the Tassie medal. Yeah, yeah, no, we'll uh, we, we'll work that out and maybe inform the listeners at a later date on that one in a subsequent episode. But he won the medal. That's the main thing. He won the William Leach medal, Rob. That's what it was called, ah, the William Leach medal. There it is. So he he did some. So we were fairly heavily involved in football with that side of the family. And so they they were pretty well ingrained in Tassie life 
um, both sides of the family, as I say, born and bred, sort of sixth and seventh generation Tasmanians. So our original family, Rob, came out on the first uh, one. One side came out on the first fleet. So have to tell you, families always worked hard. Uh, one side of the family got sent out for stealing a loaf of bread, and the other for stealing a horse. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> I can't say that I have the most pure of backgrounds. Well, being a country boy, I'll make sure next time you come over that I tether my horse somewhere safely, so that you can't um, maybe revisit some of your family. Back- I think you're pretty safe nowadays, but- Rob. <laughs> Yeah, given that I'm allergic to horses might be a bit of an indicator that uh, that's not going to be likely anyway. (laughs) But um, moving on, um, I I think that um, when it comes to my journey uh, as a bookkeeper, there there was a a moment that I look back on now. I probably didn't see it at the time, but I look back on now and, and think, yeah, I reckon that was the moment the spark started. You know, you're 11, 12 and you're moving on and you're, you're thinking of flying high with Qantas or something like that. What When can you pinpoint a moment where bookkeeping became something that you're aware of at minimum and then started to play an impact on your life? Well, interestingly enough, as that 12-year-old standing in that room, I had my heart set on studying law. So accounting, okay. bookkeeping, commerce had never even entered my head at that point. So throughout my high school years, I did a lot of subjects that led towards me uh, eventually moving into law at university. And in fact, I even enrolled in law at university uh, with commercial master or commercial major, sorry, as to what I was going to actually complete. And interestingly enough, I got into the process and worked out I'd really enjoyed accounting and bookkeeping through school, through commercial studies through school. Funny enough, I remember pulling out an old report card um, some years ago and finding my year 11 report card, mid-term report card for accounting studies, and I got a C- minus for bookkeeping. So that Ooh. kind of tells you how far off my radar it was. But by the time I hit <laughs> university, uh, law I worked out pretty quickly that law wasn't the direction I was going to go and I wanted to work in business administration and finance. So funny enough, I... 12 months into that law degree, I just decided that that really wasn't what I was looking for at the time. And so I just started to apply randomly for jobs. And funnily, one of them was I was dropping my resume off to anyone that offered any kind of an administrative job. And I applied for an office junior with a major accounting firm in Hobart and sort of sat back and added the list to the pile, never really thought much more of it and got a phone call from the practice manager who said, Amanda, we'd really like to meet you. So I'm all excited thinking I'm going to get an office juniors job in an accounting practice. How good is this going to be? And (laughs) I go into the practice and I sit down in his office and the very first thing he says to me is, before we get started, I'm not going to offer you the job. Nice. And I remember thinking at the time, that's kind of strange. Like, why would I be in here if that was the case? Anyway, he said, we've been reviewing your resume and your school reports and we're actually pretty excited by what we've seen. And at this stage, I would have been almost 19. And he said, yeah, we, we just sort of thought that if we put you into an administration role, we think that you'd get bored very quickly. So we'd like to offer you a position on the professional team. And I've sort of looked at him and said, well, what's that? I have no idea what you're talking about. And he explained how the dynamics of an accounting practice works and you have administration team and a professional or a a practicing team. And so I joined that team for two years and uh, was doing a whole range of things from what was at the time fairly standard bookkeeping and the traditional, the ledgers and writing up the old cash books and spending hours cross-adding them and all of those kinds of things. And so I spent two years in there and I think that was my first indication that I really had a bit of a bent for bookkeeping and and some fairly basic level management accounting. Two years after that though, I kind of got a little bit, for those people who have ever worked in a major accounting firm, you understand that there is a bit of a hierarchy. So unless you're of a certain level, you don't necessarily get to talk to a client as such. And Because I'm such a people person, I struggled with that after a couple of years. And that's sort of what really happened. So I ended up leaving there and taking a couple of other jobs that had a very heavy bookkeeping slash administration bent. I was a creditor's clerk at a major Mitsubishi dealership. I um, also was the fleet sales manager for a while. Even Can you believe that, Rob? Me trying to sell a car. 
which wow. is hilarious. Seeing as wow. I can tell you most of them have got four I wheels and an that. engine. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so fleet sales and then moved into the to another job again, but I, I just kept changing jobs all the, about every two years. I just couldn't settle down anywhere till, until eventually in the year 2000, clearly, we all know GST came in and mm. I was asked to rejoin the accounting firm that I was originally a part of. But this time they asked me to go back as their bookkeeper. And that was a really interesting journey. So, and I loved it. I worked out pretty quickly that unlike the accounting work I'd been doing before, being a bookkeeper meant that I got to speak to people. It meant I got to go and visit my clients. And I really felt like I was making a difference in just the everyday running of a business rather than sort of receiving the information 12 months down the track, doing something, maybe issuing a tax return and just not really feeling part of the process. I felt really disconnected. So that was... It was sort of through those few years that I really got to the point where I determined the bookkeeping was what I really wanted to do. But mm. I suppose the, uh, the the main crux point of where it turned from just being something I enjoyed to becoming a real passion of mine was we had a – I prepared – decided to prepare a case study for the accounting practice I was working for about developing a bookkeeping division of the, the accounting firm. And I spent three or four months putting this thing together and I had done, I thought I'd done a pretty amazing job. We ended up with so, a- So what year, can I can I ask you, what year would this have been? About what time? That would have been mid-2003. Yeah, so early early doors, it wasn't was it? It was very yes. early doors. So keep going. So, and in those days, mm. like bookkeeping businesses just didn't exist. Like bookkeepers either worked standalone, you- you didn't even really have bookkeepers in an accounting practice. Like it was, it just, you just didn't do it. It was completely separate. But the introduction of technology, watching people bring their accounts in at the end of the financial year and the book work would be a disaster. You know, they'd walk in expecting their accounting fees would be half because they'd done all the bookkeeping work. And then you'd realize that, you know, maybe you had to give them a little bit of education on how to use MYB because they didn't quite get it. So, I'd put together this case study about setting up this division of the firm and asked the partner I worked for if he would take it to the broader partnership and he said yes and then came back to me after the meeting and I'm all excited thinking that they'd really go for this and it would be a really great opportunity and they came back and said, no, it doesn't fit with our grand plan of what we want this practice to look like. So therefore, the answer's no. And... So it was sort of from that point that I started to really believe in that plan that I'd put together, that business plan I'd put together. And I was just watching opportunity after opportunity slip through their fingers. So there was some fair amount of personal things going on at the time. And so I had sort of made the decision that if I ever had the opportunity that I would potentially look at maybe bookkeeping could be my way back into the workforce after family and that kind of thing. So I I shelved it for a little bit, but it was pretty disappointing to find out a number of years later that apparently that proposal never even made the partnership table, never went Mm, past the partner I gave it to. So that was a bit disappointing to find that out later. And, you know, around this time, like you said, GST obviously had a massive impact on, on all of us who were in the industry at that time or trying to find our way in the industry. I noted that around about almost the moment that GST came in, you had another pretty significant moment in your life and that is you got married. So you uh, kind of, yeah, chose an interesting year to to do that. I mean, we all choose the year that uh, seems to be the right one, but right right then um, and maybe... Can you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, that that particular journey? Oh, look, you know, my first husband and I, we met each other when I was uh, 19. We actually worked together and, yeah, it was just – it was a relationship that sort of blossomed and I got married when I was 24 and things were pretty well okay. You know, life was life was okay. We never necessarily had any grand plans for anything but life ticked along pretty well. Um, a lot of people used to say to me frequently, you, you two are such a strange match, like you're so different. And uh, I never really saw it. But, you know, when I look back in hindsight and 
I'm sure I'm not the only one. We look back at previous situations or relationships we've been in and you reflect on the reasons as to why you did or didn't stay or what brought you together in the first place and what didn't. But look, we we were together for 11 years and Again, one of the things that I'm a big believer in, Rob, is that every experience that we go through in our life contributes to who we are. Mm. So I've had people say to me in the past, do you ever regret going, you know, getting married the first time and all of the experiences that came with that and the, some of them not so great? But when I sit back and reflect on it, I, I actually don't because, as I said, that all, that all contributes to who I am. So I'm not one for regrets mm. in that regard. Mm. But look, we were, as I said, we were together for we were together for 11 years, married for just shy of five. But yes, it was an interesting time mm. to be getting married and then um, leading an accounting firm because you've got to remember accountants at that stage never even touched GSD until it got to the end of the 2020, mm. 2021 financial year, the, sorry, the That's 2001 right. financial year. So... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. My wife quite often reminds me that somehow I managed to manoeuvre five kids being born outside of cricket season every year so that it didn't have any interruptions. So that, that's probably where I was going <laughs> with it. You know, it was an interesting year for you to, to get married, you know, probably the biggest thing other than uh, recent times with JobKeeper, but the biggest thing that's impacted on the bookkeeping world. But it's a powerful, a powerful message that you've just um, brought to me and the listeners, I'm sure, about your reflections on that first marriage. I'm going to fast forward a bit now to the year 2013, I reckon. I'm going to go with 2013. I can see you smiling. Uh, A little event at an MYOB conference. Um, (laughs) I'm thinking Melbourne, Sydney. Was it Sydney, I'm thinking? Uh, it was no, Melbourne. I'm not going to tell the story. You you, you tell the story. Uh, well, so we're, we're talking the start of yeah. um, start of journey number two, isn't it? It was Rob, mm. and you and many other people were a very big part of that. I have to say. So, 2013. Uh, well, I met my now husband in 2011 first, and 2013 I was at the MYOB conference and. Uh, not only were we at the MYB conference, Rob, you'd been part the inaugural partner of the year, the year before me. And, Thanks for the plug know, there. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, in 2011, 11. I believe it was. Um, and so 2012 I'd been and I was fortunate enough to and very honoured to be named MYB partner of the year in 2000, uh, 2012. And so in 2013, um, we also launched another business, which we had started to launch at that event, and we, which was Freedom Connect Bookkeeping. So that was pretty exciting and memorable for the, from that perspective. And I'd actually just, you know, as a lot of us do, I'd ask Peter whether he'd wanted to come to the MYB conference or come over to Sydney. And, you know, while I was at the conference, he could go and do his thing. And so he ended up coming to the dinner on the, on the night of the dinner and I remember standing on stage and being interviewed by James Scolay and James sort of talking to me about what it was like to be partner of the year and then all of a sudden James has said, so we know what it's like to be partner of the year, but what's it like to be the partner of the year's partner? Now, Rob, I don't know if you remember, but in 2012, when I won, the year I won, I was actually quite ill at the event and very mm, nearly didn't go. Yeah. Mm. And so... I don't really remember a lot of what the handover of that conversation between you and I was. And I remember sitting there thinking, I don't remember James doing this with Rob last year and getting Jackie on stage (laughs) and thinking, well, whatever, I'll go with it, you know. So Peter comes up and James is asking him a heap of questions and it wasn't until at one point James Scully turns around and says, so I've asked all the questions, Peter, do you have anything to ask? And then I remember thinking, what is going on here? <laughs> and so in front of 250 of my closest MYB friends, he got down on one knee and proposed on stage. <laughs> so, and the crowd went crazy from memory. <laughs> and I still get people to this day who come up to me and say, we were there that night. We were part of that. So that was yeah. pretty special. Um, funny enough, the, the, the proposal itself, you can't take anything away from that. I give him, I give him 100 points for the way in which he managed to achieve that. <laughs> Uh, but on the other side too, um, I couldn't have 
I cannot think of a better group of people to have spent it with. All of my closest friends were in the room that night, or the vast majority of them it were. Was a, it was an amazing night. It was a special night, I can assure the listeners, and uh, MYB might be uh, remembered in years and centuries to come for many things, but I reckon that moment will stand out as the standalone moment in their history, and it had nothing to do with software. <laughs> it had everything to do with you, you Amanda, and it was it certainly kind of survived me to the grave, I know that it was just such an amazing night but look tell me at that point you you mentioned you know the creation of freedom connect many of us and certainly many of the listeners now will be sort of uh, at a point perhaps where they're trying to develop their their bookkeeping businesses right now and each of us have had different approaches across the journey Uh, certainly mine's been quite different to yours in many respects what was it about Freedom Connect that um, sort of came together to make it so successful? And it has been a successful business, hasn't it? Look, it has, Rob, and I think it was a culmination of a lot of um, a lot of hard work and a lot of people who actually helped to get it to to what it became. So Freedom Connect. Um, so if I just take a step back a little bit, in two thousand and four, when my first husband and I separated, I through a whole varying amount of circumstances, I had lost my, or I was working for a small panel beater at the time, um, trying to have a job Mm. that had fairly low stress levels. And I remember at the time that that marriage fell apart, uh, as I say, through varying circumstances, I threw in my job and I remember standing there thinking, how am I going to pay the mortgage? And so that was at the point that I started my bookkeeping business, which was Freedom Accounting Support. And Freedom Accounting Support from a fairly early stage in the business really was about helping business is really what the foundation of that business came back to. And um, someone who I admire greatly helped me unpack and get to that point of actually understanding what, what was my why. And that's really what it was, was about helping business. So at the time, we were just starting to have the conversations around what the what is now the Tax Agent Services Act was going to be and the Bass Agent Regime. And I remember standing and having a conversation with Matthew Addison, funny enough, Matthew Addison and I think Mm -hmm. Peter Thorpe from um, ABN and them saying, so what are you going to do? You hire staff. I had a team of 12 by that stage. And they said, what are you going to do with people who want to come and get their two years experience? They'll come and work for you, you know, learn all your IP um, and all your systems and then potentially go off and set up their own business anyway. So what are you going to do about that? And I remember my response being to them, well, it's not a case of if, it's a case of when. It's going to happen because people have to learn somewhere. So at that point, I had decided to set up a framework of being able to, how do I employ people, mentor them through being a really good bookkeeper, and then at the end of the two years, be prepared to release them out into their own business. And so that was really what the beginnings of what Freedom Connect bookkeeping became about. And it was about connecting people, which hence where the name came from. So mm. it was really about being able to connect a new bookkeeper to learn in an environment that where they were supported and they were effectively mentored, but give them the skills and um, the skills and the knowledge so that at the end of the two years when they were ready to apply to be a BAS agent in their own right, they could actually do that and they had a fairly good grounding. So I remember at the time, again, through varying business circumstances, then reaching out to, to at that stage, four of my closest friends and we talked about the concept for quite a while and then we decided um, we ended up, it ended up coming down to three of us, as you know, Rob, and three of us sort of decided that we were all had the same vision for being able to support new bookkeepers into our marketplace. So that was the foundation of where Freedom Connect came from. It was meant to be that mentoring, hand-holding business for new bookkeepers into the space. So what we actually worked out through part of that journey was that they were also would be looking for work. So we then turned our attention to leverage off some of the relationships that we'd built over the years and put in place some to be able to offer to design and develop bookkeeping systems. And that's really where Freedom Connect has ended now. It's about developing those those systems, uh, focusing on franchise groups has been our core business. And we've done that fairly successfully. So I think we've done a good job, but it's been, I say, it's been a lot of 
work by a number of people who have gone into actually making that happen. You speak about, um, you know, how the the business developed and, and we've just heard a bit of an insight into that, but I'm acutely aware that along the way you had a number of, you, you referenced it earlier, a number of health battles. You also have had a number of other challenges in your life, just just for a few moments, are you, are you willing to to share that with the listeners? You know, and I, I know that the listeners know that you are, or some of the listeners know that you are very heavily involved with Beyond Blue, and um, that 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 has obviously had some uh, genesis somewhere. And and uh, you prepared to maybe just share a bit of that story? Yeah, look, it's it's a story that took me a lot of years to be able to speak about. And what I've realized now is that by speaking about it, I hope to encourage some other people that there is a light at the end of the tunnel effectively. So as I mentioned, I was married the first time at the age of 20 and like, oh, sorry, we married at 24. Um, And like, I suppose most young couples around that age, we had planned on a family and um, it had never once ever in my considerations come to thought that, that that wouldn't be able to happen. So as I say, we got married at 20, I got married at 24. By the age of 25, plans to start a family hadn't come to fruition. And so after some medical intervention, I was basically told that I would never have children of my own. And so that was pretty devastating for me. I'd not built my identity around the fact of at some point being a mum, but I'd certainly put, as I say, it it just never occurred to me that it would never be able to happen. I just expected that that's sort of the life journey. You know, you, you got married at a certain age and you started a family and somewhere in amongst their career happens. And so it was pretty confronting and pretty challenging for me during that time. So four years of treatment through IVF um, and with every unsuccessful treatment, I used to find myself just sitting back and wondering why I was here. Like, what what did this all mean? Why was this all happening to me? So that was an extremely challenging part of my life. And then when my first marriage broke down, one of the challenges that I had to deal with was not only the loss of the relationship, and but facing the very real chance that maybe I would never have that family opportunity. So that created a whole lot of challenges. And you used to have to go through a certain amount of compulsory counselling with the IVF clinic and things like that. But other than that, I never really spoke to anyone about it. I just sort of sucked it up and moved on, I suppose. That was just, I don't know, a little bit of the way that I tended to handle things. So that was extremely challenging at the time. Um, But what that led to is when I – so when – the marriage broke down and I started Freedom Accounting Support, that first business, I had some very well-meaning people around me who just said, hey, look, you know, you've got this real passion for small business and for bookkeeping. Why don't you just head first into that and make that your focus and do what you can, you know, control what you can. And so what I came to realise many years later was the fact that I literally did. I dug in and I decided that I was going to make this business work at all costs. It didn't matter what it was, I was going to make it work. And so I fell into the trap pretty quickly of excessive, excessive hours of work. Um, I found that as much as I loved what I was doing, and I never really thought about it as work, that was the key thing to, to think about here. So it was almost like the whole situation crept up on me a bit. I, I loved what I was doing. I didn't see the fact that I was still sitting at work at midnight um, three or four nights a week was a problem because I didn't have anyone to go home to anyway. So I just, my whole world became that business. And look, don't get me wrong, Rob, it was an amazing journey and I met some amazing people, learnt some amazing lessons and along the way. And the challenge for me, I think, was I was listening to a girlfriend of mine at one stage say that she'd been out for dinner with a group the week before and I remember saying, oh, hang on, how come you guys didn't ask me to go? Like, I thought we were all friends. And she just looked straight at me and didn't even blink. And she just said, well, we were going to ask you, but we figured what was the point because you're always working anyway. And so what I Mm -hmm. worked out was that even though I'd given everything to that business and from the outside world, it all looked great because, you know, like I was 
we were winning awards. I was a finalist in the Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Awards, for goodness sake. I was, mm-hmm. we, we were doing all these amazing things. We were building a business of a kind that had never been built in Australia before and not to that level, not to the extent that we were at that, at that point in time. Anyway, I think there were, I think at the time there were like six bookkeeping businesses in the country and <laughs> you had one of them, Rob. So, um, you know, it was, I was sort of very, very engrossed in what I was doing, but I would stand, it got to a point where I would stand on stage telling people how amazing my life was when in reality, in the background, everything was just falling apart. I, um, the, the challenge that left me with was that when I had a situation where I had an extremely challenging situation with a former business partner, that effectively was the beginning of the end of that business. And what I'd worked out was that I'd spent so much time living and breathing this business that I had no life outside of it. So I had no support net. Mm. I had become quite estranged from a lot of my friends. I was pulling myself away from family. I just, as I said, my whole world had become that business. So when things sort of started to go wrong, I didn't Mm. have anywhere to go or anyone to turn to. Um, so I literally just sat and thought, you know what, suck it up. Plenty of people have got it worse than you. It's, this is just part of running a business. Like don't get into the weeds of why you're here. Um, and yeah, I suppose I just sort of pushed it aside quite a lot, but the reality was for a period of about three years, I would literally put on my happy face and I would go to work and I would meet with the friends that I was staying in contact with. And I would stand on stage at conferences telling the world how amazing things were. And then I would go home and literally curl up in the corner on the, or on the lounge, just, you know, for hours and hours in tears. And so that was a pretty significantly trying time, I have to say. And I remember at the time just thinking there is no way in the world I'm going to let the broader world know that I don't have it all together and I don't have all the answers. And I remember being Mm. when I got called out on it and a very, very dear friend of mine who a lot of the listeners would know, Leanne Berry, um, her and I have been great mates for a lot of years. She's my best friend. Mm, we, yeah. mm. I came home from a client one day and I walked into my kitchen and I dropped my keys and my bag on the floor. To this day, I have no recollection of the 40-minute drive home. I mm. remember walking in, Louise literally sitting on the floor and just bursting into tears and just sitting on my knees, just sobbing. And about, I don't know how long it was, maybe a few whether it was minutes or whether it was seconds after that happened. But my phone rang and it was Leanne and she just said, I don't know why I had to ring you right now. Are you okay? Mm. Yeah. Um, for the listeners, it's, um, yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> it's a moment we're both having right now, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> it's a powerful yeah, story, so Amanda. It's a powerful I suppose story. the learning out of all of that is what I realised is, for three years, no one ever actually asked me if I was okay. And that's all it took. And I think if I can if I can sort of try and add to in a moment that's yeah, caught us both by surprise, I think. But um, to have to have a friend in need, I think it is one of the most important things to have and and you had Leanne at that moment and I'm very thankful that you had Leanne at that moment and it's it's something that I think if we all reflect on our lives, we've all at some point had somebody that we go, wow, they were our guardian angel. They were the person that we needed right at that moment and certainly uh, those who know my story would know I definitely have that that scenario Um, and it is a powerful, a powerful thing to know that you've got a friend that you can lean on at the moment that you most need them. And yeah. um, Amanda, I've got to tell you, we, we're um, we're very privileged that you've let us inside that right right at this moment. And uh, I, I I appreciate it a lot, and I'm sure the listeners do too, and are getting an understanding of how. How, how everybody has their struggles. We don't diminish that. But for, for you and your life, you've had some amazing moments that have really defined 
um, probably the rest of your journey, if I'm right. Yeah, look, Rob, the, the thing is, I suppose the thing that I wanted, the message that I'd like everyone to hear out of that is sometimes, and th- and that's the foundation, you mentioned Beyond Blue before, that's the foundation story as to why I am so passionate about working with Beyond Blue. Because as I said, if someone else had actually said, are you okay? Um I don't know. Look, maybe I would have, maybe I wouldn't have. There's no crystal ball with it. Maybe I would have gone through what I did, maybe I wouldn't have. But the the challenge was I just didn't know. I felt so disabled I didn't know where to reach out for, for help. And the fact that she had sensed that there was something not quite right and had made the call. And just to give you an idea of the state that I was in, um, we all know that a bank statement's a pretty fundamental piece of paper that we deal with on a daily basis. And <laughs> I remember sitting in front of my desk and... Look, Leanne was amazing. She talked me through every half an hour of that, the rest of that day. Um, I couldn't, I had a bank statement sitting in the front of me on my desk and I couldn't even recognize it. So, but the beautiful thing about that friendship was the fact that she didn't try to fix it. She didn't say to me, hey, I think you're depressed. She just sat and she listened and encouraged me to see my GP, which I did. And that was sort of where everything turned, I suppose, from that point in time. And it was the strength of having people around you when you go through struggles like that is so fundamental to who we are. And I think that's something that we miss sometimes is, you know, especially in, in a situation like we're going through at the moment with everyone on Zoom calls and um, not being able to, to gather together in varying areas. Um, I think we underestimate the power of actually being able to be together as people and so yeah. that was a that was a really fundamental turning point um, for me so yes it was it was a significant struggle there's no two ways about it but I would not have gotten through that process if it had not been for friends like Leanne and she was one of of many who helped me through that process from a professional standpoint there were only maybe three or four people in our industry who had any idea of what I was going through at the time, but they all did an amazing job of supporting me through that, of um, sometimes buffering people away from me, sometimes just coming up to me at an event and giving me a hug. Um, You know, it was just, it was one of the more profound moments of my involvement with this community. That's where we bring to an end part A of Heart of the Bookkeeper, Amanda Linton, Pop on over to part B and continue to hear the incredible story of Amanda and make sure you tune in and enjoy the remainder of Heart of the Bookkeeper, Episode 1, Amanda Linton.